Warning. The following broadcast is not approved by your teacher, university, politician, or government. Side effects may include skepticism, better reasoning skills, liberty, peace, and an escape from the woke. Welcome to the show. I am your host, L.B. Muniz, and this is the Been Awake Pod- Podcast for Better Sense Making. If you are within the sound of my voice and you haven't visited beenawake.com, can I ask you to do that today? New landing page at beenawake.com. There you can find out how to subscribe to the Substack. You can follow me on all social media. And of course, if you would be so kind, you can also support the mission of better sense making. Buy me dinner. It's about the same price. So this is episode 81. And I've entitled it World War III for as long as it takes. Now, recently I've rebranded the site with the tag for what comes next in politics. And this kind of, this episode, we're going to go through a little bit of Joe Biden's speech uh, on the one year anniversary of the war in Ukraine. We're going to go through Vladimir Putin's speech on around around the same time that was given around the same time that that talk that talked about the war that's going on we're going to go through uh i, I kind of put together two super cuts of them they're both uh, a little on the long side so we're not going to listen to them all the way through i will probably put those out there for premium subscribers so if you didn't want to sit through the whole uh about 40 minute speech of joe biden's and an hour and 45 minute speech of vladimir putin which i did not make it through i read through the transcript and skipped around to uh to some of the more important parts um I will get into that as part of the analysis. But before I do, I wanted to talk a little bit about that tag for what comes next in politics because it's it's an attitude and it's a way of viewing current events that I'm trying to cultivate here that is less concerned with ideological positions and more concerned with trying to understand things better. Now, that doesn't mean we're not bringing bias into this. That doesn't mean we're not going to apply a narrative and a lens. And in fact, that's precisely why I think the show can do a good job of showing what comes next in politics, because we actually analyze narratives here in a proper way. Right. I got into a conversation recently about the about the war in Ukraine, and it was. And kind of in reflecting on it, I'm not going to go through every single part of it. It was a private conversation. But in reflecting upon it, I did think it was interesting um, the way it, it is. It's interesting how inherent narrative is to our being as humans. And when the more the farther away we are from a from a piece of information or from something happening in the world, the farther away we are from something like that, the more we have to keep that idea in mind that of how powerful narrative is to our being and how narrative, right, telling a story can put us in one direction or another. That's why people spend years le- learning how to do re- uh, persuasion and influence and sales tactics to get people to buy and you know using marketing and sales tactics to hit trigger points so that people buy your product this is a very well again you know that's we're setting that we're setting the we're setting the, the the baseline here that's a very a very common thing 
for people to try and do right and and in many respects the the idea of having language at a very fundamental level is about telling other people what you would like to have happen right negotiation comes from that but it, but, but first it has to be like okay i want something so i'm going to tell that other person over there that i that i'd like that right or or and there, obviously there's other ways of communicating but the point being it's about translating what's up in here what's being perceived by our eyes and our ears and our senses into something intelligible for for another being another human to uh to take into account so that's so we're getting into we're getting into some heavy heavy material right like i i titled this episode world war 3 for as long as it takes and i mean that because and i don't and i mean that not because i it brings me any sort of joy but i mean that because it's what we're hearing from well from places like joe biden from 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 the mouths of people like joe biden highest the people at the highest levels of the united states government for as long as it takes the united states government has committed to supporting the war effort in ukraine and i suppose you could say because the uh, the reflexive thing is to almost ask, well, what about a declaration of war? But I suppose they have voted to fund the Ukrainian government consistently. The United States Congress has. So I guess you can consider it an act of democracy the way Joe Biden would want it to be. But when I had that conversation about it, where there was a disagreement about, you know, the position to take and uh, or, or how to view the war in Ukraine. I was struck by that because it was because in the course of the conversation, as often happens, as you know, somebody asked you to cite sources. Right. Can you cite your source for that? Now, I now that's in in unless you're in the an actual physical uh, formal debate, an accusation like that is not really given in good faith, especially when you're having a conversation in, in IRL, as it were, in real life, when you're actually talking to somebody and it's extemporaneous and it just kind of happens spontaneously. It's a useful defense mechanism. A lot of people have broken it down in various ways, but it's basically a way of it's a way of pushing. It's a day, it's a detente, right? It's a way of of blocking a blow without necessarily without necessarily having any sort of counter strike, um, in an allegorical sense, at least. So, but but cite your sources, and it and it kind of occurred to me. It's interesting that the that like one of the ideas baked into saying something like that, especially if it's said in earnest, right? Let's pretend it was, especially if it's said in earnest, is the idea that you can pull that 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 you can only have one view of something when you pull from the source data that's how inherent narrative is is the idea that there are opposing sources so to speak no there's opposing analysis that draws from the same source data and that's what we're going to get into as we kind of analyze um analyze the speeches of two of the most influential world leaders for better or worse in the world that we live in today. Before we get there, though, I wanted to revisit a piece that I wrote at the beginning of this conflict, given that it is a year later. And I was, I was at this time, I was personally struggling. I didn't, I didn't, um, I was not somebody who thought that Putin would actually invade the Donbass region. I didn't think it was going to happen, even after the talks had, even after the talks between NATO, United States, and Russia had, uh, had declined. At the end of 2021, even even though I, you know, I, I just didn't think it would happen. So 
as I was sitting there thinking about it, and I was also watching as the war effort and the war propaganda effort was being ramped up here at home, which is just an obvious statement, right? I'm not, we're not, I don't want to attack anybody's belief who might support the Ukraine at this point in time, or, or Ukraine or, or Ukrainians, I should say. Because I think at the heart of this conflict, what's interesting is both President Biden and President Vladimir Putin mentioned this in their speech, that their war is not with the people of either of the countries that are involved in said war. Joe Biden said his war wasn't with the Russians. Vladimir Putin said his war wasn't with the Ukrainians. Both claim to have the interests of the Ukrainian people, the best interests of the Ukrainian people in their hearts. So nobody's fighting, nobody's, nobody wants to fight, you know, innocent civilians, and yet innocent civilians still die in the course of war. But I wrote this piece called A Crash Course in Geopolitics. And by the way, if you sign up for a free trial, you can access the entire archive at beenawake.com at the Substack. Um, you can check out some of these old pieces and then cancel if you want. Um, or, you know, keep keep going. Like I said, buy me dinner. That's That's the... That's about the price of your first year. But a crash course in geopolitics, and this is a very simple piece. Um, and we start with the definition, as we so often do at this website. A study, geopolitics, according to Merriam-Webster, is a study of the influence of such factors as geography, economics, and demography on the politics and especially the foreign policy of a state. During the recent, with the recent military campaign in eastern Ukraine or autonomous Donbass region, depending on who you talk to, Americans have found themselves once again having to contend with the complicated game of brinksmanship that makes up the geopolitical landscape. The problem, of course, is that the American press has no vested interest in giving Americans a reasonable or worthwhile understanding of what's going on in this conflict. I want to briefly share one fact and two tactics you can begin you can use to begin to understand the game being played in front of your eyes. Number one, and this is the reason, this is one of the reasons why we're reading this piece, is to remember that you're not in control. I'm not in control, right? Anybody, anybody, with few exceptions, anybody who's listening to this has any sort of control over what's going on in the war effort currently. So therefore we understand that we're not here to, we're not here to answer questions of, what could have been or what might be we're looking at we're looking at things as they are because we're not in control of geopolitics so it may be it may be the case that you're encouraged to post your support donate your dollars or put another country's flag on your social media profile this doesn't change the fact you have no control over what is happening across the world it may seem like an obvious remark but it's where you need to start your thinking if you think that posting on social media or stating your support for the people of Ukraine makes a difference beyond your individual psychological contribution, it's because you are watching consent being manufactured in real time. It's not entirely obvious that we should be supporting the that we should be supporting the war effort in Ukraine. We'll kind of get into that as we analyze the speeches. Number two in understanding geopolitics is root for the home team. So as you kind of as we're going to kind of as you're going to kind of see, we're breaking rule number two in the context of this conversation. That's why. Why are we breaking this rule? Because it's worthwhile breaking a rule like this if it can lead to a higher and a better understanding of things. 
But that doesn't change the fact that the way most humans understand geopolitics is by rooting for the home team. As a friend and patron put it to me recently, American hegemony is pretty good for me. As a sense maker, though, it's my duty to dig deeper into stories and to find the appropriate context to present to my readers and listeners. It doesn't follow that every that everyone can or wants to do the same thing. In fact, the safest thing for people to do in an, in an environment like this is to support the home team, a.k.a. the country that you live in. And the third thing to understand about geopolitics, getting back to where we started this podcast with narrative, is different stories shape the world. If everyone naturally roots for the home team, it implies that there are multiple stories being told. The real insights from geopolitics come as you peel back the layers of your own biases. Of course, by doing so, you might find yourself under the eraser of tech censors. You might find yourself at odds with people in your family. If you're not careful, that's that's what's going to happen. It takes bravery to stand up against the herd. But bravery alone won't change the direction of popular opinion. For that, you need to build your network of trust and become the authority that people turn to in times of crisis. So we understand. So so hopefully that that that's a nice little primer for everyone to go ahead and um, get us started here with this conversation about you know what's going on in the world. Because it's kind of funny, isn't it, the way that we all just kind of understand that this this sort of conflict isn't going away. Even if even if you're somebody, even if you're a peacenik who wants it to happen, you under you you kind of intuit and you recognize that it's not going away anytime soon. So we're gonna start. We're going to start by playing the opening segment of Joe Biden's speech. And in particular, one thing that I thought was hilarious is um, one thing that I thought was hilarious about this was the music that they brought him out to. So we're definitely going to we're going to go ahead and watch that as well. Ladies and gentlemen, please welcome the 46th president of the United States of America, Joe Biden. Freedom, freedom is you. You give it Yeah. It's kind of a it I just thought this was really funny because of course, you know, usually it's there's like a band playing, but instead we got this uh great little freedom club hit. Kinda of bops. Kind of a banger. And there goes Joe Biden. You know, a lot of people have commented the way that he walks. It's so he doesn't trip. Hello, Poland. Comes out like a rock star. One of our great allies, President Duda, Prime Minister, Mr. Prime Minister, Mr. Mayor. It wasn't just Ukraine being tested. The whole world All right, we just jumped. faced a test for the ages. Europe was being tested. America was being tested. NATO was being tested. All democracies are being tested. And the questions we face were as simple as they were profound. Would we respond? Or would we look the other way? Would we be strong? Or would we be weak? Would, be, would, we, would we, the, all of our allies, would be united? 
or divided. One year later, we know the answer. We did respond. We would be strong. We would be united. And the world would not look the other way. So that's the opening segment. And of course, he started by um, he's what, what he's been doing is he's been talking about the fact that this is the largest uh, land war in Europe in three quarters of a century, which is to say the end of World War Two. And that um, and that, you know, a lot of people didn't think Kiev would Kiev Kiev would stand a year later. And it is standing. And that's because of the help of NATO and, and the United States. Now, one thing that's going to be that's interesting as we kind of move through this speech in particular, and we kind of even saw it in that little in that in that song that they played in the intro are his appeals to freedom. Now, domestically speaking, this is not a winning message. It's not something he spends a lot of time talking about here. Domestically, he talks a lot about defending democracy and standing up for and standing up for our ideals as Americans. He doesn't talk about freedom. He talks about maybe liberty. But he really talks about, you know, it hasn't been a focus point. But in this speech, it's very much a focus, very much the focus point. And of course, once again, we're talking about he's setting up, which is which is what you do when you're writing a speech. Right. You see and you'll see that we're going to see the same thing in Putin's speech in just a few minutes here. But what we see is that and what he's been doing throughout the course of his presidency, as we've laid out on the show, you can go back and check out older episodes where I've done analyses of Joe Biden's speeches to this effect is he has been setting up the stage of conflict or the stay the stage for the next the next you know the next segment of geopolitics as being between the forces of democracy and the forces of autocracy which is to say people that well which is to say in his mind uh, i guess you could say dictator and a dictator and tyrant but in reality as we're going to kind of as as we kind of draw things out is people who stand opposed to nato so we're going to go ahead and keep watching. It's going to jump around because uh, I kind of, you know, I watched this and, and did it and did like a screen report thing. We also face fundamental questions about the commitment Here. to the most basic of principles. Would we stand up for the sovereignty of nations? Would we stand up for the right of people to live free from naked aggression? Would we stand up for democracy? One year later, we know the answers. Yes, we would stand up for sovereignty, and we did. Yes, we would stand up for the right of people to live free from aggression, and we did. And we would stand up for democracy, and we did. And yesterday, I had the honor to stand with President Zelensky in Kyiv to declare that we will keep standing up for these same things, no matter what. No matter what. Than ever before. He thought he could weaponize energy. Now he's talking about crack Putin. your resolve, Europe's resolve. Instead, we're working together to end Europe's dependence on Russian fossil fuels. Sorry, he had trouble getting through that. He's got a bunch of gaps in this sort of speech, but it's just kind of it's just kind of what you expect. And I don't want to spend too much time focusing on those, given that I I can't judge Russian well enough to know whether or not Putin makes the same kind of ones, although. As you're going to kind of see, there's definitely a different tenor to the type of rhetoric that each man employs. But I thought this part was in particular, and it's worth dwelling on, of course, because, you know, he talks about Russia. He talks about in the part in this part of the speech, he's talking about how Russia used their uh, used economics to try and bring Europe to the bargaining table, as it were, or to basic or and basically in the form of Russian oil. Right. And so 
Of course, this is on the heels where there's been reports that the United States, through proxies or otherwise, or actually I think it was during military exercises, sabotaged what was referred to at what is known as the Nord Stream 2 pipeline, which was a project between the, the Germany of the European Union, who's also a member of NATO, and Russia. So, of course, that's that's a nice little spin right there. If you, you know, if you if you're doing the dirty work of the Biden administration in this regard, man, it's it's a it's an interest. It's interesting how they weave everything in there and they have an answer for whatever they want. He thought autocrats like himself were tough and leaders of democracy were soft. And then he met the iron will of America and the nations everywhere that refused to accept the world governed by fear and force. He found himself at war with a nation led by a man whose courage would be forged in fire and steel, President Zelensky. President Putin. President Putin is confronted with something today that he didn't think was possible a year ago. The democracies of the world have grown stronger, not weaker. But the autocrats of the world have grown weaker, not stronger. Because in the moments of great upheaval and uncertainty, that knowing what you stand for is most important. And knowing who stands with you makes all the difference. The people of Poland know that. You know that. In fact, you know you know it better than anyone here in Poland. Because that's what solidarity means. You know, it's very, very interesting. Partition and oppression. It's it's very it is very interesting because as I'm rewatching this, I'm noticing even more how it's very like that was almost unintelligible. I thought I just wasn't paying attention the first time. That's how great. That's how the resolve of Moldovan people. The Moldovan people have a delegation at this uh, event. The resolve of the people of Moldova to live in freedom, when gain them independence and put them on the path to EU membership. President Sandu is here today. I'm not sure she is, but I'm proud to stand with you and the freedom-loving people of Moldova. Give her a round of applause. It just, again, kind of interesting. Ukraine will not waver. NATO will not be divided, and we will not tire. <laughs> President Putin's craven lust for land and power will fail. And the Ukrainian people's love for their country will prevail. Democracies of the world will stand guard over freedom today, tomorrow, and forever. So that's what it's that's what's at stake here. Freedom. That's the message I carried to Kiev yesterday. That's what's at stake the here. Freedom. Of the people of Ukraine. Of the autocrat cannot be appeased. They must be opposed. Autocrats only understand one word. This, I thought this part no. was interesting. No, no. Autocrats can't be appeased. They must be opposed. No, you will not take my country. No, you will not take my freedom. No, you will not take my future. And I'll repeat tonight what I said last year in the same place. A dictator bent on rebuilding an empire will never be able to ease the people's love of liberty. Brutality will never grind down the will of the free. And Ukraine, Ukraine will never be a victory for Russia. Never. Still leads a democratically elected government 
that represents the will of the Ukrainian people and the world. So a lot of the speech, again, reinforces the fact that, oh, we thought these people would be gone last year and now they're not. Ha ha, Russia. And you also see you also see, again, the, the appeals to freedom. And what I find most interesting about this is just how, again, domestically speaking, this has not been the message of the Biden administration at all. It has already voted multiple times, including the United Nations General Assembly, to condemn now here we're, here we're condemning Russian aggression. Each time in the UN that vote has been overwhelming. And, I, and, to, I, and to support the peace, but of course... I speak once more to... Sorry, I know it's jumping around a bit, but the problem, the problem with that, of course, is that the U.S. stopped peace negotiations. They, 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 encouraged, they encouraged the Ukrainian government to not accept the peace terms that Russia was considering at the beginning, uh, about six months into the conflict. And of course... Before the conflict, as we covered on this show, there were negotiations that were purposefully that were that that, were, that purposefully fell apart in many respects. See, for better or worse, and in this case, worse, the United States government is the world superpower, right? And this came because of the unipolar moment that occurred at the fall of the Soviet Union. And so, for a while, the United States got to do basically whatever they wanted. The United States government, and they did. Now the now what a lot of people think is that you well it, there's there's basically a couple opposing schools and we're going to see Putin in a little bit detail at least a part of the an opposing thought process. One is that the United States continues forward with NATO and the EU as their allies, but the United States still being the superpower, and they will continue to dominate the world in wherever in whatever sphere they choose and dictate terms to various countries around the world. Other people, and if you listen to geopolitical experts, they'll talk about this, is under, or believe that as, as countries continue to develop, countries, like, countries with large populations, a solid economic base, and I don't know, maybe nuclear weapons, as those countries continue to develop, they're going to want to exert influence within their local spheres. And that will eventually come to a head against that that will be at odds with the United States government. So Putin is, or rather Putin Biden is using is using all of his rhetorical ability which you know isn't isn't that great if I'm being honest. He's using all of his rhetorical ability here to try and draw people together under the banner of freedom and saying that this is freedom versus tyranny. That is the fight that we're having. I frankly wish that, for to my eyes, it was so clear because it would be a lot easier to not be in the. It would be a lot easier to understand this conflict. The people of Russia, the United States, and the nations of Europe do not seek to control or destroy Russia. The West was not plotting to attack so Russia. Here he's as saying. Putin said today, and millions we'll get back of Russian to that. citizens only want to live in peace with their neighbors are not the enemy. This Here's him saying it. We're going to see Putin say the same thing. It's a tragedy. That's President Putin chose And that's the reason like you're not in control, you understand? <laughs> like these guys will always sit there and say that our war is not with the people, but the people are the one who invariably fight these wars. That's why it matters who ends up at the top of society, by the way. 
Every day the war continues is his choice. He could end the this war is also a big part of the rhetoric, as well as this it's push simple. of making it a singular thing. If Russia stopped invading Ukraine. Stopped invading Ukraine. End the war. If Ukraine stopped defending itself against Russia, it would be the end of Ukraine. That's why together we're making sure Ukraine can defend itself. United States. So this is so you, as we've kind of gone through, we've done this. Uh, we've done this a few different times on the show. Is we really see this narrative taking shape. These are the forces of democracy against the forces of autocracy, the rule of the many against the tyrannical rule of the one. It's the people rising up against the rising up against the corrupt. That is the narrative that's put forth by. Um, that's that's the narrative put forth by the Biden administration, by NATO, by by the by the West, broadly speaking. And it's why it should be. It's why it's being argued we should be funding the United the Ukrainians to the tune of hundreds of you know, what a hundred billion dollars at this point, more than more than the annual defense budget, if memory serves. And so then I want so I want to stop and I want to ask the question here: If that is the case, if this really is about the if this really is about democracy and about the highest ideals of Western civilization. Why, why, why are the Ukrainians the only ones joining in on the fight? Why? Why isn't it the case? Why, why aren't the world governments making the case, making the positive case why we should support the people of Ukraine with our own troops? If it's really that important, we should do everything we can to end this conflict as soon as possible, with as much might as possible. Instead, we're instead, and this is this is the signal from the Biden administration, as long as it takes. Those are the words. Make sure I have that right. Let's see. I know it's got the word takes in it. As long as it takes. It must not have been in this speech. Oh, because that's the. Anyway. For as long as it takes. <laughs> Sorry. That's the signal. That's what the United, that's what the government's been putting out. So why, why wait? If not now, when? Why why not why not say we need to stop this war within the year and that's why we're going to do everything we can to to including sending armed sending the army and the marines and 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 the NATO and the NATO alliance why if it's that if it's that existential a struggle why are we settling for a proxy war people i think if you ask them that question would shrug their shoulders and say i don't know well here's an answer because it's not about those existential things. That's not about the big ideas that they're trying to get you to be down with the cause for. Maybe it's not about those things. Maybe it's, in some respects, as simple as feeding a war machine that needs somewhere else to go. The United States has spent the last, has spent the first part of the 21st century 
in the last part of the 20th century, destabilizing the Middle East. And now there's a pivot to Asia. Well, guess what's in the way of the Middle East and Asia? It's Russia. Now, for some, that puts me in the pro-Putin camp. And it's uh it's it's a weird it's it's always a very it's a very weird position for those of us in this world of content analysis because sometimes it's it it because because everybody wants there to be sides and again we went through the crash course in geopolitics so we understand we understand better than most why that's occurring so now we're going to get into uh make sure we're still recording so now we're going to get into Putin's speech here. So now, as you can hear, uh, he does not come out. <laughs> does not come out to the to the to the club beat. Now, I, I, obviously, all right. So I recorded more of this. I am going to post this as like a standalone thing for premium subscribers. So if you want, you can watch the whole seventeen-minute thing. And I know that it's in Russian with the subtitles. So if you're listening. Give me, give me a minute. We are. I will. I'll, I'll go ahead and like do the whole narration on top of it. So he, you know, all the deputies, all the people there, citizens, dear citizens of Russia. With today's address, I am speaking at a difficult time. We all know this very well. It's a milestone for our country. At a time of cardinal, irreversible changes throughout the world. The most important historical events that determine the future of our country and our people when each of when each of us we have a each of us have a colossal responsibility. We're not going to read the subtitles. So what he's saying and how he opens up his speech. Hang on, let me scroll to the top here. And it's a very long speech. There's Okay, so and really quick, actually, before I get into that. So there's a little bit of a difference between these two speeches. So it wasn't a tit for tat, right? So Putin's was like his hour 45 yearly address to basically the media, members of his government, I'm, I'm assuming celebrities, kind of like the State of the Union that the, that the president does here. And in the context of that conversation, he addressed a lot of these things. Um, interesting to note, because a lot of people have pointed this out, he's standing for this uh, address. A lot of people I know in um, a lot of people have pointed out that he doesn't uh, stand a lot. And there's speculation that he might have something like Parkinson's. So, it uh, you know, he did make a show of strength to make uh, to make sure that he did this. So he says, I'm reading directly from the transcript, so it's a little bit clearer. One year ago, to protect the people in our historical lands, to ensure the security of our country, and to eliminate the threat coming from the neo-Nazi regime that had hold in Ukraine after the 2014 coup, it was decided to begin the special military operation. Step by step, carefully and consistently, we will deal with the tasks we have at hand. Since 2014... Donbass has been fighting for the right to live in their land and to speak their native tongue. It fought and never gave up amid the blockade, consistent shelling, and the Kiev regime's overt hatred. It hoped and waited that Russia would come to help. In the meantime, as you know well, we were doing everything in our power to solve this problem by peaceful means and patiently conducted talks on a peaceful solution to this devastating conflict. Behind our backs, a very different plan was being hatched. As we see now, 
the promises of Western leaders, their assurances that they were striving for peace in Donbass, turned out to be a sham and outright lies. They were simply marking time, engaged in political chicanery, turning a blind eye to the Kiev regime's political assassinations and reprisals against undesirable people, their mistreatment of believers. They increasingly incited the Ukrainian neo-Nazis to stage terrorist attacks in Donbass. The officers of nationalist battalions trained at Western academies and schools. Weapons were also supplied. I would like to emphasize that prior to the special military operation, Kiev had held negotiations with the West about the delivery of air defense system, warplanes, and other heavy equipment to Ukraine. We also recall Kiev regime's vain attempts to obtain nuclear weapons. They discussed this issue publicly. The United States and NATO quickly deployed their army bases and secret biological laboratories near Russian borders. They mastered the future theater of war during war games and prepared the Kiev regime, which they controlled, and Ukraine, which they enslaved for a large-scale war. And what we see as we go through the speech of Putin is he lays out this case, this broader case that the U.S. government has put together has put together conditions and continues to support the regime in Kiev. Of course, we're going to find that part of the speech here. Um, of course, again, there you know it's not about it's it's not about the people of Ukraine. Those 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 are the real people. This is this is the crux and this is the this is the key of where we are currently in the um in this war, in this conflict, in what will inevitably it seems at this moment, I, I pray for a different resolution, what invariably will continue to be an ever encroaching, ever expanding world war. I just saw it released today as I'm recording this on on the twenty seventh of February that China has put out peace plan talks between Ukraine and Russia. And I'm sure Russia is going to support the idea of China hosting the peace talks. The question will be whether the Ukrainian government wants to stay as closely allied to the West as they can currently, as, as they are currently, or whether they will go to the table. I started this podcast by talking about the importance of narrative. And I want to remind people of another idea that we discuss, which is the distinction between a formal and an informal analysis. By a formal analysis, we know that in political, in the, in the world of politics in particular, a formal analysis is done by looking at what's written on a paper, right? So in that world, we recognize the government of China as the People's Democratic Republic of China. In that world, we recognize all sorts of things. But the world isn't, fortunately or unfortunately, right? What comes next in politics? This isn't about what I want or what you want. The world is not changed by what's written on a piece of paper. The world is changed by actions of people in positions of power and authority. That includes the lines we draw on a map. While I am not somebody who likes the idea of violating borders, there is something to be said for the fact that the eastern part of Ukraine has always been dominantly Russian and that the borders drawn up during the Soviet Union don't accurately represent the actual layout of people. 
any part of the world where the borders have been redrawn over the last hundred years, which is pretty much all of Europe and uh, and and most of and most of Asia and certainly the Middle East. We look at these lines as being sacred. In fact, that that is the idea, right? Part of the part of the call of NATO is to protect sovereign democracies, of which Ukraine is considered one, even though they are not a member of it. It is, it is, and that and that idea comes to us from a post-World War II order. Respecting the sovereignty of these of these nation states as they were. But that's only the last 70 years. And who's to say what comes next in politics looks like what we've seen over the last 70 years? From what I can tell, that's not what's going to happen. Now, I think what we're going to see with the with the with the conflict in Ukraine is it's going to continue apace. And other than the other economic con- problems that we have currently, right, with like rising inflation and 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 you know, right, the rising cost of living and so on and so forth. You're not going to see much of a change to your life because how much did your life really change after 9/11? Yeah, you know, we had the TSA, right? We have to we have to take our shoes off at the airport. Yeah, there's a bunch, you know, there's other things that we've incorporated, but at this point we've incorporated those things into our daily lives. Look how far removed we are from from the pandemic at this point. It almost feels like it was forever ago that we were locked in our homes, that the government was forcing you to wear a mask everywhere. People persevere. And unfortunately, given given the people who are in control of the piggy bank, the floodgates are open and the war machine is very, very happy. That doesn't mean what's happening in war is right. And it doesn't matter the rhetoric of the world leaders in, in the positions. You know, listening to Putin's speech, you I could almost have been I could almost have been accused of agreeing with him. And perhaps he does believe the things, some of the things he says, just like I believe, just like perhaps Joe Biden believes some of the things he says. But that doesn't change the fact that they'll say what they have to to put themselves in the best position. And so given that the United States has taken Team Red or Team Blue, that means that leaves Russia Team Red. And, and in all of these things, we're all playing some kind of a war. We're all playing some kind of a game. That's going to do it for today's episode, guys. I hope you enjoyed it. If you would, make sure you go follow me on all social media at the LB Muniz. If you like what you heard today, Go to inawake.com to subscribe for future updates. My name is Albi Muniz, and I am not one with the woke.